I was unemployed. I exhausted all my savings and I was about to be homeless. And here it is. We won one of the biggest educational fights and got national attention for it all at the same time. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today is the story of a community organizer from North Philly who made history this past November. That's when she became the first person ever elected to Philadelphia City Council as neither a Democrat nor a Republican. The story of City Council member Kendra Brooks is now on Philly Who. Well, hey there. It has been a while. If this is your first time hearing the show, welcome aboard. And if not, welcome back. Right now, it's the first week of May 2020, and the world is quite different than what it was when the last episode of Philly Who was released, what feels like 10 years ago, in December. Back then, I was feeling a little burnt out after having produced 68 episodes of this show in only 18 months. I wasn't happy. I needed a break. Now, the plan was to step back, take a few months, and figure out what I wanted to do with this show, with my business, with my life. I just needed some time to figure out a sustainable business model, you know, grow the team, establish process, make improvements, try out new ideas. Then, after just a little bit of time, the show could come back completely reinvented in a grand return with all of my problems solved. And that is exactly what happened, right? (laughs) Of course not. But that's okay, because I am at home safe and healthy. And as you're about to hear from our guest, Philadelphia City Council member Kendra Brooks, life never goes according to plan. And sometimes the most positive, most triumphant moments in our life come in times of disaster. So it is in solidarity with all of the parents out there who have recently added homeschooling to their daily routine that we prepare for today's story with a brief lesson of our own about Philadelphia government. City Council is the legislative body of the city of Philadelphia, the equivalent of Congress on the federal level. Now, City Council has 17 sitting members. 10 of those members represent a specific geographical district The other seven candidates are at large, and they're elected by the city as a whole, and they're not tied to that specific district. Of those seven at-large seats, Philly reserves two of them to be filled by a political party other than the majority party. Democrats outnumber Republicans here seven to one, so for as long as any of us can remember, the seven at-large seats of city council have been filled by five Democrats and two Republicans. On November 5th, 2019, though, that century-old pattern ended. On that night, Kendra Brooks became the first member of a party other than Democrat or Republican to win a seat on city council in modern Philly history. She was sworn in in January 2020, and for the next four years, city council's at-large seats will be filled by five Democrats, one Republican, and one member of the Working Families Party. Now, Councilmember Brooks's election as a minority party candidate was definitely a surprise in itself, but it was also unlikely because she didn't have any political experience prior to running. The only similar experience she had was as a community organizer in the neighborhood of Nicetown, 
where she has lived on the same block since she was eight years old. A lot of my older neighbors are still around, so they know me from infancy. I'm like the person to make sure they get their groceries now during COVID, the person who checks on them when their children need to come pick them up and move them from place to place. And now we also have a series of new people in the community, but still on my block is mostly working class folks. Kendra's father was a military man and moved around a lot. She was born in New York and moved to Philly as a child to live with her grandmother. By the time she was 12, the rest of her family came too. Today, she still lives in the same house and still looks after the same neighborhood. I I just like caring for people. And I remember being a military brat, you know, going to the doctors was a whole to do. We had to go to the military base. It was like a whole day process. And I was always amazed with all the folks that were available to us at the military hospital. So I said that when I grew up, I wanted to do that. I wanted to be a doctor and work with people. So She admired these military health professionals so much that she decided to follow in her father's footsteps, join the military, and become a physician. That was my original plan. (laughs) But, as usual, life didn't go according to plan. Just as she turned 18 and prepared to enlist, Kendra became pregnant with her first child. In order to continue with her plan and join the military, she would have to officially give custody of her baby to her parents. Yeah, that was no. I wasn't doing that. I felt that it was my baby. It was my decision. I would have to figure out how I was going to do this a different way. So I actually, my first job was at a Fairview Care Center, and I was a nursing assistant, an 1199C member. And that kind of sparked my desire to take the path into possibly going into nursing and using some of the education fund through 1199C. She used that funding to attend the Community College of Philadelphia. So single mother, you decide to go to CCP. What during that time was your average week like? Oh, God. So I still worked full time at the nursing home. I went to school part time. I originally started going to schools on Tuesday and Thursdays. And I worked every weekend because you only can get two days off a week. And no one no one wanted Tuesday and Thursday off. But those were the two days I could take off to go to school. So I was in working or in school seven days a week with a small child. By that time, my parents had moved to Florida. <laughs> wow. So I was in Philly by myself. My grandparents were deceased by then. So it was just me and my ex at the time. How did you do it? I had to. do When you don't have choices. Yeah. You know, I, I've always been pretty ambitious. And my daughter was my motivation. Like one of the biggest things, I refused to be a statistic. And fall into the stereotypes that they would like to put young black teenage moms into. So I was always committed to not being a statistic. And part of that included me working full time. I did a lot of doubles. I went to school. My friends and I had like co-parenting. So like when someone else is, we rotate the kids based on everyone's schedule. My ex at the time, he was an excellent father. So he took care of the kids when I had to work. We, we made it happen. His family was very helpful through yeah. college. I didn't have an option, and I was not moving to Florida with my parents. Like, right. that wasn't No moving to Florida. Yeah, we're, we're not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not on the table. <laughs> so you would then go to study at Temple. Mm-hmm. Now, so, so you studied at CCP to become a nurse. Did that plan change? Because you would wind up going to Temple, and then you, then you got an MBA. So, so how did that change sort of what you wanted to do? So at the nursing home, when I, my major was nursing, all of the nurses used to always like show me different things 
that kind of introduced me to nursing things. And I remember um, one of the nurses said, well, I was on a team called a restorative practice team. And we helped the most fragile residents at the nursing home. And I worked very closely with the nurses. And they was like, we're going to show you how to impact a bed wound. Hmm. That was the day I decided that nursing wasn't for me. (laughs) So you took one look at that and said, no. No, it was, I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. But she powered through. And after seven years of studying part-time, she got her associate's degree from CCP. At this point, it was important for me to elevate at a different level. So she enrolled at Temple University. I went to school full-time and I worked part-time. Hmm which helped me hurry up and, you know, speed up the process of getting my bachelor's degree. And I switched my major into therapeutic recreation. So I worked with gunshot victims, brain injury and stroke. And I also did some work at Easter Seals as an intern, working with children and adults with uh, special needs. Easter Seals is a 501c3 nonprofit that provides disability services to people of all ages and their families. Right. So... Tell me about your time at Easter Seals. You wound up working there for 17 years. I imagine you enjoyed that, to do that for 17 years. One of my good friends at the time, she had a son as well. So he's my godson. He has diabetes and sebicitis. I could be messing it up really bad. So, and he had severe disabilities. And actually the doctor said he wasn't going to make it till five. He just turned 30. So that was my first experience in working with people with special needs. So when I went to Easter Seals, I kind of like fell in love. My, my major was therapeutic recreation. So we spent a lot of time adapting what rec and leisure looks like for people with disabilities or limitations. And I kind of fell in love with it. I had the opportunity to meet and see children grow up into adults. And some of them with severe disabilities grow up to be amazing adults Yeah. over my tenure. And I just loved it. I loved giving children the opportunity to do something they didn't think they could do and allowing parents to see their children in a different light in terms of their strength and abilities. Kendra would dedicate her life to serving those with different abilities and was ready to spend her entire career at Easter Seals. But again, life doesn't go according to plan. So a portion of, a major portion of my budget came from education Governor Corbett was in office and they started doing all these major education cuts. No one funds recreation. No. And once the cut started, I had a feeling that I was going to be on the list. So I wasn't completely surprised when the actual conversation came down. After 17 years at Easter Seals, Kendra was laid off. I think the hardest thing for me was it took me maybe 15 years to build this amazing program in five counties serving hundreds of children and adults with disabilities. And I had to dismantle it in 90 days. I was devastated. Like my life and who I was was completely tied up into my programs. Everything about me, you know, even my children's, my older children, access to work ethic and job experience and It all was grounded into my role at Easter Seals. Most of my friends still to this day were like staff members, families that we served throughout Easter Seals over these 17 years. So it was really my life. It was a really hard time for me because that was the only job I've had in most of my adult life. It truly was everything. 
it, it was completely everything. And so when something like that happens and, you know, the thing that you've built, the thing that you've built your life around gets pulled out from under you, what do you do? I'm a workaholic. I, I'm a busy, but I cannot stay still. Mm. So while I was looking for jobs, I began spending a lot of time in my children's school and investing. Before I used to send more money and donations, it quickly transitioned into service. So I was at the school every day. People in my neighborhood still always think that I work for the school district, but I didn't. <laughs> you were just there so much that people thought that that was your job. Yes, yes. And I'm pretty much an introvert. So the, the principal never really knew what I did for a living or anything. I just was there all the time. And she gave me a role of supporting. I started hosting programs for some of the young adults at East, not East Sills, see, my whole life mm. at Edward T. Still Elementary. While Kendra was unemployed, searching for a job and volunteering the rest of her time at Edward T. Steele Elementary, she got word of a plan for an administrative change, which would completely transform the school that her children attended. Someone I know at the school district called me and said that they're coming to Steele School to change it into a charter school on Monday. I was like, wait a minute, I'm on the school base advisory committee, the district base advisory committee. In the state advisory committee. How didn't I know that? I called the principal and she said that she didn't hear that at all. So what I did was call a parent meeting on that Monday. So they all came into the building to, for my meeting and the district came and took the meeting over. What? Someone told the district that I had formed a meeting about this and they were trying to get ahead of it and wanted to take over my meeting. And the principal of the school didn't even know that this was happening. No. This was all brand new to her, too. So from that point on, we moved all our meetings outside of the school. Wow. And so what you were fighting against was a charter school was coming to take over control of your children's school. Is that right? Yes. The plan was they were going to give the parents an opportunity to vote whether they wanted a charter school or traditional public schools. They didn't give us a choice of which charter school. Hmm. They just said that we had to vote between either the charter school or maintain district leadership. And I, I'm not anti-charter school, but if I wanted my kids to go to that particular charter school, there are a lot of them all around my neighborhood. At that time, what they were giving us was an illusion of choice and not an actual choice. So I used my connection to the community to organize folks around fighting for the one thing we that we had left. I didn't think it was going to be a fight. And I think in the midst of planning these meetings is when... The person who bought my house on share sale came to the door and said that he bought my house. And I was like, "You what? Remember, Kendra had just been laid off of her job, which she had held for 17 years. The whole reason she had time to organize her fellow steel school parents in the first place was because she was unemployed. She fell behind on her property tax payments and the city put her house up for sheriff's sale. And what's worse, she had no idea that this was happening. The problem is that the house was currently still in my father's name. Oh. So we, we had like tangled titles from my parents divorced and right. all of that. Yeah, no, I don't remember any notification. Everything happened really quickly. And I went, I got a lawyer. I actually went and made an agreement with the city for it not to happen. And then the city still overturned the decision and gave them my house. So now I pay rent to the house that I actually cashed out my 401k to pay for My goodness! in the process of switching it out of my parents' name. And I just never finished it. 
And so the, was the mortgage, the mortgage was paid off. I paid off the mortgage. And so those folks still own your house? Yep. My God. This is all happening at the same time. The same month Kendra loses ownership of her house, she's organizing the entire community to exercise their choice in whether Edward T. Steele Elementary would stay a public school or become a charter school. We did a lot of door knocking and a lot of conversation. They asked us to come together. We had to do a vote. And our community voted to maintain a public school. They reinstituted a school advisory committee. We already had one, but they reinstituted another one to gain control. But either way, we won unanimously. They end up backing out saying that they didn't want to do it if the community didn't want them there. Eh, that's good. How did you feel when that happened? I lost a fight that I didn't think I was going to lose and won a fight that I didn't think I could win. Like, huh. I'm going against a, one of the largest charter providers in the city. We had a, a solid five to ten parents that were doing most of the work hmm. up against one of the largest charter providers in the city. And we won. Definitely not something I thought I was going to win. So I was I, I guess I needed the balance. Like at the time I had lost my house. I was trying to figure out how to get up the money to try to buy the house back. At the same time, celebrating the victory that, you know, parents and community members have the opportunity to rise up and win in a way that we didn't think we could. Yeah. And I think from that point on, it just kind of opened my eyes to systematic oppression. Right. Um, understanding how so many of the things that we take lightly are already stacked up against us. When I'm talking about black, brown and poor people mm -hmm. and that together we have power. I think it's easy to pick us off as individuals in our own weaknesses. But when we come together, we can win anything because I was at the weakest, most vulnerable time in my life. I was unemployed. I exhausted all my savings and I was about to be homeless if I didn't come up a plan where I'm housing. And here it is. We won one of the biggest educational fights and got national attention for it all at the same time. And for me, it helped me redefine what winning was and redefine what, what power really is. In some ways, I felt like I lost everything. I realized that I won an understanding of who I am and who the people are around me. And for me, that was one of the most important lessons in my life. Who were you and who were the people around you? We were strong. We were resilient. We loved our community. We loved ourselves. We were committed. We were dedicated. We worked hard. We were willing to make sacrifices. And that's not the narrative that we hear every day of working class black people in this city and in this country. That is one of the largest lessons that I learned in the fight. All the stories that we've been told about who we are are not true. We have to create our own narrative and understanding around things that are most important to us and our communities and can't allow our narrative and our story to be dictated by someone else. And for me, that was the most powerful victory that I've ever had in my life. Despite all the degrees I've achieved, all the accolades, the win for my community, that's the first one. Yeah. That, that it changed my life. And I couldn't go back. 
Like the, you got the I taste. even tried Yeah, <laughs> I, I I tried to get like a regular nine to five job and I was like it was taking me away from organizing and continue to build a momentum around so many other things. I always say that that fight for still school was like taking the pill in the matrix. Yeah, that's right. It just like opened up my eyes to all of these other injustices everywhere. And it kind of reawakened something in me that I wish I was able to tap into earlier on in my life. Coming up, how that momentum would start to build. And before long, Kendra Brooks would make Philadelphia history. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Philly Who with City Council Member Kendra Brooks. So Kendra Brooks was still reeling from losing her job of 17 years because of state education budget cuts. She had fallen behind on property tax payments for the house she grew up in, a house for which she had recently cashed out her 401k so she could own outright. To her surprise, one day she opened her front door to find the new owner of her house, who had bought it at a sheriff's sale, and who to this day charges her rent to live there. At the same time, Kendra organized her community of fellow parents to come together and vote for their local public elementary school to remain public instead of being taken over by a charter school. They won, and this victory gave Kendra a feeling she had never felt before, a feeling of power, strength, and resiliency. She had been bitten by the bug of community organizing and wanted to do more for her community. And while you and I now know where this is going, Kendra didn't quite yet see it that way. After the win at Steel, people had started asking me about running for public office. And I'm like, I'm not even connected to the Democratic Party in that way. Yeah. You know, I'm not political in that way. I'm more issue driven and I'm an introvert. So I like I don't mind talking about things that I'm passionate about, but just like randomly being around a lot of people is not my, that's not my, that's not my thing. Wow. So I was like, no, I have no interest. Yeah. So then how does that change? My mentor, Ronald Whitehorn, we were coming from an organizing meeting and he brought up the idea of a third party. And I was like, wow, that's very interesting. And he kept talking about this third party, the potential for a third party to you know, push the Democratic Party more to the left. It would be an amazing thing if we can make this happen. Helen Gim was a part of the Steel fight. She came and helped me organize with Steel School. We were part of Parents United together. So I brought it to her attention. I said, Helen, what do you think about me running for public office? She said, go for it. I'm like, I, I, it wasn't that I was going to do it. It was just a question about what do you think? <laughs> it wasn't like a definite thing. <laughs> right. So Working Families Party approached me about potentially running as a third party candidate. And I was like, what would I have to change about me to run? Hmm. That's my, and they was like, nothing. We could just be who you are. Yeah. And we'll support you. And I was like, okay, let me think about this some more. I think I thought about it for over a year. Wow. That long. Yes. Because I knew it would change my life. Completely. You know, when you think about politics and politicians, you got to have a squeaky clean background. I come from a very private family. Yeah. And just the idea that I'll be telling all my family's business. 
Well, this is the least private thing you could possibly do, right? <laughs> and, you know, I spoke with all my friends because that, expo- you know, opens up their stuff as well. And we came to a decision that I should go for it. What do I have to lose? Yeah. And, you know, as I began to tell my story, so many times people would come and, and it resonated with more people than I thought. And it was across race. It was across class. It was across socioeconomic status. People were just, it was like, wow, I remember when, or that was me, or this happened to my mother, or like all of these different stories. And at that point, I realized I had done the right thing. And my thought was, win or lose, it's about bringing these issues to the forefront and removing the shame and the stigma around being poor. It was liberating for me, but I also felt like it liberated other people as well. Because you don't talk about the fact that you might work every day and you could barely buy groceries for your family. But once you find out that so many people around you are feeling the same thing, there's a sense of power there, right? Exactly. And that's how you build power. And part of building power is storytelling. Yeah. And like, who would make this crazy story up? No, nobody. (laughs) (laughs) No, you couldn't write it. That's incredible. No. So you start to campaign, right? You say, we're doing this. I'm running for Philadelphia City Council. Now, at that point, nobody from a minority party other than Republican has ever won. In the modern, you know, governing mm-hmm. era of Philadelphia has, has won an at-large seat. So what's your confidence level in your ability to actually win? I figure it was 50-50. I figure I can go either way. Yeah. Either I'm going to win or it's going to be a joke. <laughs> I, I knew it was possible. I remember at the beginning of the campaign, we were door knocking. People were like, you don't have a door sign. You don't have buttons. You don't have T-shirts. And I'm like, that costs money. Yeah. I don't have any. Yeah, right. <laughs> My campaign manager was volunteer for like six months. And she also never ran a campaign before. Her name is Arielle Clagsborn. She uh, was my colleague. We both worked together at 215 People's Alliance. So when I decided to run for office, I said, I won't do it unless you're my campaign manager. And she said, I've never been a campaign manager before. I said, well, I've never been a candidate before. And we're going to figure this out. So they got to work. They was like, in order for you to win, you have to raise $100,000. And I was like, I don't even have any friends. How am I going to raise $100,000? And then once again, I thought back to the base. I know that I don't have one friend that could give me $10,000. But I do have several friends that believe in me that will be willing to support. Mm. And we were able to garner support from thousands of small dollar donations. Yeah. As well as other folks began to pull in support. Like any grassroots movement, Kendra's progress at first was slow. Again, not one person running under a party other than Democratic or Republican has ever been elected to city council. So the odds were against her campaign and... Not a lot of people took it seriously. But as the election cycle wore on and Kendra continued to campaign and her movement began to grow, she started to notice a change in how other people and organizations were talking about her campaign. People who thought I was crazy, when they started calling me and wanting to have conversations Hmm. and meetings, I said, oh, I might really win. Really, I probably wasn't even on their radar. But when they started calling me, I was like, oh, wow. And it was like back to back to back, like over... A two-week period, people were calling left and right. And I was like, oh, we might, we might really win this. 
So she pushed herself harder. She gave it all. We got to the last two weeks of the campaign and I told my team that I'm done. And they was like, what? I'm not making any more phone calls. I am going to cook dinner for my family. I am going to take care of myself and prepare for election day. It might have been like the last two weeks or so. And they was like, oh my God. Because I have the whole time, I was all in, fully committed, seven days a week, 12 hour days away Hmm. from my family. And then I just was like, this is it. I've given all that I have and let's see what happens. And I think all the way up to election day, they were like checking on me because I just was checked out. You were spent. It was a lot. It was the hardest. I thought grad school was bad. This was worse than grad school. Wow. You emptied um, the tank. Yeah. It was like, it was so funny. I was like, remember Forrest Gump when he was running, 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 and he just stopped and said it's over? <laughs> and everyone behind him was like, what? What, what are you doing? <laughs> that's, exa- that, that's exactly how it went in my office. And I was like, nope, I'm not doing anything else. I just needed to spend time with my family. I think there's wisdom behind that, too, because, you know, that can be translated to other pieces of life where there's there comes a point where... It is now what it's going to be. Like you've given it all that you can, and there comes a point where you just have to see where the where the chips fall. Yeah. And so, yeah. election night. Take me through the moments where you learned what happened. So, election night, all my friends were calling. Me. Well, evidently, I had the the best party ever. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like my friends were calling me, and I was like, "What? Where are you guys at?" We're like, "We're at your election party," and they were just putting the camera around. I was like, oh, oh, wow. <laughs> but I was at my, my daughter's house who didn't live far from where we were celebrating at the end. It was my strategist, campaign manager, and my friend Tamika, who's my chief of staff now. Nice. And they were looking at the computer, and I was just sitting on the couch. <laughs> I just, What's going I was through your th- mind at this point? What are you thinking? Number one, I couldn't believe that I just did this whole thing. Like, I can't believe I just ran for public office, playing it all back in my mind. Like, who would have thought they call me Nikki? Nikki from Nice Town, you know, with a lot of spice and a little nice, very dedicated and committed, all those things. But I would have never thought I would be at this moment. So I just sat there. I didn't have anything to say. They kept refreshing. They kept refreshing. And we couldn't get our results. And I said, well, well, whatever's happening, it's 11 o'clock now. I know that some of my supporters are older. 11 o'clock is really late. Let's just go. And I remember we pulled up in front of Barbara's Hall and we got our final results. And all I did was just scream. Everybody just looked like I was crazy because I hadn't said anything for hours. (laughs) And I just started screaming and crying. And then we walked into Barbara's Hall and I could see like all my cousins and colleagues and friends even some of my my old staff from easter seals was there it was just like my what some of my clients from easter seals were there Hmm. when i looked at the face since of my family members the look on their face described my feeling because they probably still couldn't believe like what just happened yeah yeah what was the look on their face almost like a wow this is, like I said, for me being a very private person to doing something so public, making history, it, it's, it's, it, for real, it's, it's, to me, it's still very surreal at times. Even now, and I think we're like 
a hundred plus days in, I think. This only happened a couple months ago, right? <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> so what then happens in between, right? So you, you get elected to this position and you're you're then sworn in in early January. Like, is there like, are there like city council training videos? Like, how do you prepare? Yeah, no, I started, well, my first goal was to meet all of my colleagues as colleagues now. Um, right. Keep in mind, I'm coming from being an activist, I've met a lot of them before, but not as colleagues, usually at a protest, yeah, you know, a community meeting or something like that. So I began scheduling time to meet with all my colleagues, one-on-ones. And keep in mind, everyone else that was elected, they had since May right. to kind of hire staff, come up with a clear agenda on what you're going to be working on and all of that. Remember, in Philadelphia, most of the major races happen actually during the primaries, which is in May before the November general elections. That's when seemingly dozens of Democrat candidates compete against each other for the five Democratic at-large spots on the election ticket. Those who win the primaries are pretty much a shoe-in to win the general because we know that five Democrats will amass more votes than any of the opposing parties. So these council members have more than half a year to prepare to govern. I had all but a month and Christmas, Thanksgiving and all those things are happening in between. Right. So I, that's what I did. I began meeting with my colleagues, start thinking about staff. I already had folks in mind who I wanted to come on board, give people enough time to leave their jobs, pull together a transition team to help kind of navigate all of this. I thought the same thing. Is there a manual or something? (laughs) Quickly find out none of that. You have to figure it out on your own. It's like starting your own small business. You're on your own. <laughs> then, now, you, you you take an oath, right? You're sworn in? I'm actually not sure. Yeah, we are sworn in at the inauguration. That's actually the first day of work. It's really the beginning now, right? <laughs> like This mm-hmm. is day one. All you've done, it, it leads up to this. So take me through how you think and feel during inauguration. My mom went with me to the inaugural breakfast. I thought she would enjoy that. Hmm. Um, then I realized that I probably should have had somebody along with her to help her navigate because I was still working, being pulled in different directions. It was the first day we got our IDs (laughs) to get in and out of City Hall. That must be cool. It it was very cool. And it just seemed like it all went very quickly. Next thing I know, it was like, we we went through this whole ceremony, went back to City Hall, and I, you know, all my friends and family were there. And the other things that I was concerned about was like, what are we going to do tomorrow? Like, Tuesday was the next day of work, and... We had to be ready to move on things. And I think at this time, I only had three staff members hired officially. And then I had like two other people pending because they had to wait to leave their jobs. Still in, this, yeah, still in the process of figuring out what exactly is this office going to look like. How did the first few weeks, maybe days, months, compare to what your, what, what your expectations were? Like, how did your perspective change in those first few days or weeks, if at all? I had to realize that even though I have high expectations for myself and my staff, I don't have complete control of what happens around me. And that's like logistical stuff that was driving me crazy. Like no one told me how to get paper for the copier. (laughs) Right. The stuff that would go in the manual if there was one, right? (laughs) Exactly. So those are the things that had me like completely going crazy day two. (laughs) Right. Two months in to your career as a Philadelphia city council member, and the world changes with the COVID pandemic. So, first of all, what were those first few days and weeks like 
on the city council floor with your with your colleagues in city government? I can, all of my colleagues have been very helpful, more than what I expected. Hmm. I think the hardest thing was kind of getting a rhythm. Right before COVID, we had finally gotten our rhythm. When do we set our priorities? How to map out our legislation that we want to introduce? Who are the folks that we are most aligned with on various issues? Figuring out who our constituency is and what exactly their needs are Hmm. and how to tap into that. We put up my very first piece of legislation was a, a moratorium for a hearing on rent control. Right. So we were building up for a series of town halls to begin the conversation of rent stabilization, as well as support with foreclosures and share sales in the city. So right before COVID, we were just mapping out the schedule to do this citywide town hall tour. Wow. And then COVID happened. We realized that that wouldn't happen. If we're going to close down the city, there's no way we would be able to do that. And we quickly began to transition. And my team was how, if they were to close City Hall or the city was to close, how would we still be able to continue to uh, work remotely and business as usual? So I think our last week before the official set shutdown was spent on making sure all my staff had what they needed at home making mm. sure they had telephones. How would we transition our office planning style into an at-home model? And what would our priorities be? And we kind of did that in about a week. And I think that Friday we got to notice the city hall was shutting down. I was like, whew, wow. we did it just in time. Just in time, you got everybody settled. Yeah, folks think that it's like as a council office, we have money, but we don't. Like we had, to, I had to pay for that. Like we don't have a city budget at large. Wow to spend on cell phones for my staff or laptops for the staff. That's stuff that we had to pay for. Wow. I didn't realize that was the case. I was like, well, how are we supposed to pay for this? (laughs) When do I get my corporate card? You don't get one. Sorry. Have there been a lot of COVID-based decisions made by city council in this crisis time? Like, I'm not really sure who makes a lot of the decisions around how the city responds to all this. Has, Has city council been involved in that? Most of the decisions came from administration and then we make suggestions and offer feedback based on the experiences that we get from calls from our constituents. I think the only decision we had to be involved in was the appropriation of the 85 million towards all of the needs that we needed, the the hotels, the PPE equipment. Yeah, that's what we were able to do as council. But most of the decisions overall were made by administration. Right. If you could send a message to yourself in the past at any given moment, at what point in time would you send the message and what would you say? Early in my career, probably when I was about, I had my second daughter at 28. I just graduated Temple, gotten my first job, like career based job. And I think one of the things that I still, I tell my daughters now that you are enough. And that means that who I am, all of my experiences, and everything it took for me to get there equipped me with everything that I need to sustain where I am. I think the earlier version of me questioned everything about trying to balance what I was taught um, from a working middle-class family to what I was experienced, kind of moving into a more corporate world and trying to balance the two in reality. At that time, if someone was to just tell me that who I was and who I am 
is enough, Sister Samey, I could have I can't imagine where I would be now. Like right. Cause all of that second guessing for the next ten years of my life could have been put towards something more productive. Yeah. Can you describe to me the Philadelphia that you want your grandchildren to grow up in and know? Yes. First love is education. I would love a Philadelphia where we're putting access to education for our children first. A Philadelphia where families are able to live and thrive, meaning we have access to good jobs, access to affordable housing, quality health care and Medicare for everyone. Just business opportunities for the 28-year-old Kendra to realize that whatever you want to do, you can do it. And that's the same things I want for my grandchildren. But it starts with making sound investments into children and families. And I think that we can get there. What I am most excited about at this time is working towards an agenda that the baseline that we had post the pandemic is better. So I think we are at 26 percent poverty. They were toying with that number back and forth here. We, if that's our baseline, we need to change that. Yeah. We need to make sure that post the pandemic that we're pulling more people out of poverty in a way, in a way that we want our city to look in years to come. Because if not, we have the probability that we can go the other direction. Yeah. Finally, if you could get one message to every Philadelphian, be it a, a text, a tweet, a billboard, plane in the sky, whatever it is, one message that every Philadelphian could receive and ponder, what would you say? Every vote counts. That was one of my slogans in my campaign, and I'm a whole true to that now. When I talk to young folks on the campaign trail and they said they don't vote because voting doesn't matter, I promised them that if I win this election, is proof that every vote counts. Now that I've won, I'm going to continue to hold on to that. Every vote counts, so you need to make sure that yours matters. Just this year, Pennsylvania made voting by mail available to all registered voters. Our primaries have been pushed to June 2nd due to the pandemic. So all you have to do to vote from home is head to votespa.com and apply for a mail-in ballot by Tuesday, May 26th. There's a link in the show notes. I really do love doing this, but I can't be bashful anymore given the current situation. I need your support to keep it going. If you like the show and want more Philly stories, please consider joining the Patreon, donating via Venmo or PayPal, buying a t-shirt or hat, sponsoring an episode, giving us a rating on iTunes, or shouting us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or sharing this episode with a friend. There are a lot of ways that you can support the show, and you can do all of that from the links in the show notes. Literally every single one of those things make a huge impact, just like your vote. Philly Who is a Q9 production. This episode was produced, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, with music by Lee Rose Veer, and artwork by Lauren Labick. Congrats, Lauren and Matt. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Until next time.